Hello and welcome to episode number 89 of The Heart of Teaching. I'm Nathan Rivers, and today's episode is entitled, Mark and Bicycle Motocross. If you know anybody in the community that's making a difference, send us a DM on Instagram. We'll shout them out in an upcoming episode and explain their impact on the community. This week, we would like to shout out Mr. Joe Muse for continuing to be recognized as one of the best physics teachers in our nation by the Canadian government. Thanks for inspiring so many young adults. If you haven't done so already, be sure to follow us on Instagram. The link to do so is available in the episode description. The Heart of Teaching proudly supports Mom Stop the Harm. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome back to The Heart of Teaching. I'm Dave Ruzicki with my student producer and my great friend Nathan Rivers, and thanks for joining us today. Now, I've said this so many times before, but it's so true. Both Nathan and myself, we really appreciate your company. Now, I've always had a passion growing up for two wheels, and that's bicycles and motorcycles, and I absolutely love them. I must have probably about six or seven bicycles in my collection, and of course, I've got my big motorcycle. So this conversation was a must for me, especially when I found out that one of my former students, his dad, was considered to be one of the best bicycle racers, and that's BMX, that Canada ever produced. Mark Constantin was actually the first professional racer in Canada, and he's got hundreds of trophies to his credit. So in this episode, we talk about his journey related to racing, living in Southern California, and the memories and the lessons that he learned along the way. And you know what? There's some great insight related to pursuing your passions. So as always, as Nathan says, please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Mark, thanks a lot for coming in today, Sunday morning, taking time away from your family. Appreciate it. Looking forward to this. All right? Me too, Dave. I'd rather be on two wheels than four wheels. So this is uh, right right in my wheelhouse. So when we were talking before, you were saying that uh, you got into it because of these magazines. You brought a bunch of magazines over as well. But give me the story. Give me the story with motorcycles and magazines. How did that uh, work? Well, I think like most kids uh, growing up, you, you sort of saw, at least I grew up in the 70s, and as a young, young teenager, wanted to get a, a, a motorcycle because there's a lot of kids that had them. I grew up in, in South Calgary. There's a lot of development going on, and you could actually rip around on a motorbike just like doors away from where we lived. And I, was, I asked my dad multiple times and he said, uh, no way. And so I started looking at magazines and there's these suspension bikes, little ones of the fake tanks and everything. I went, yeah, those are Mickey Mouse. It's not really what I want. And there's a magazine uh, place that uh, sold it like a Mac store or 7-Eleven just up the way from my parents' house and started flipping through the magazines, just sort of drove my interest in in motocross more like as a motorcycle still kept on badgering my dad I think like any kid would possibly do right and eventually my dad gave me a hard no um, part of it came from I had a really bad bike accident I was riding my uncle's bike and uh, I failed to make a turn I was supposed to rode down the wrong place at my my grandparents house in northern Ontario where I'm from 
And motorcycle or bicycle? Bicycle. Okay. And what ended up happening is that uh, I flipped over the handlebars, uh, cut my head open and crushed two vertebrae. And I was on a backboard for about 30 days, uh, crushed uh, 40% of two vertebrae. Two, wow. T4 or five. And my dad was stoic through that, which I'm glad because if he had he freaked out, I probably would have freaked out too. But uh, I was lucky to walk. I didn't know that at the time, uh, but I was lucky to be able to, to do anything after that. Right. So. And that, you still, after you got better, you still had the passion for two wheels. I did, but it wasn't really my, I wasn't into BMX then at the time. And I wasn't really into motocross uh, at the time. It was a couple years later that that happened. And even though I, I, I'd gone through that, experienced all that, you know, that those issues of pain and, and being on my back, basically having to, you know, do a lot of things I couldn't do. I had to quit all my sports. I like soccer. I couldn't ski that year. Uh, you know, couldn't play hockey. I may have given it up before that, but I couldn't do any of those things. So I wasn't allowed to by the doctor. That's crazy because as we get into the interview, like you just had an incredible run, like, you know, considering your sport and what you were able to do. So it didn't start off really well for you then when you think about it, right? No, I remember riding to, to mom and dad's house and uh, we didn't have a fence at the time and rode up and I went to, I sort of just happy to see my dad and people that were there. And I crashed my my three-speed uh, CCM bike, and my dad just kind of laughed. I guess it was probably pretty funny to watch yeah. it from, from the other side, but yeah. it was all he could do to stop laughing. I was like, I was pretty klutzy. <laughs> How old were you at the time? Uh, when I uh, damaged my back, I was probably about 14, 13 or 14. Wow. You're fortunate to be able to walk away, literally, as you healed up, walk away from that. Yeah. Okay. Interest in BMX. You had an incredible career. Talk about that. When did that start? And how did it start? It started with wanting to have a bike and starting to build one up. I, I didn't have the money. We didn't have the money to buy a real BMX bike. Uh, the magazines were kind of fueling my interest. So I'd get a frame or I had an old frame. I'd repaint it and I'd put like a, a motocross wheel onto it and learn how to fix them and stuff. And just started jumping stuff. remember jumping my sister's bike and breaking something in there, claiming I never did break it, but I did. <laughs> and and it was just ability to be able to catch a little bit of air and jumping and just kind of riding around and goofing around and all the dirt piles that were kind of everywhere where I grew up. Right. And, but it was when uh, some bikes started showing up, there was a Kuahara bike that showed up in uh, one of the shops called South Cycle that I ended up riding for later on. And it turns out I bought the first one that was sold by that company and. I believe in Calgary and maybe even further afield and I was kind of hooked uh, but before that it was in the magazines there was uh, lots of stuff going on around uh, around BMX and there was one particular race that got my interest and it was the Indianapolis World Championships that were done by what so-called claimed World Championships it was Indianapolis in the middle of winter put on by a promoter by the name of Rennie Roker Renny Roker, uh, as I learned later is in my journey, he actually mentored a number of black uh, young people uh, to help them go from having kind of a rough life to having a path besides, say, football or those things for sport and passion. One of the guys was Anthony Sewell, and I had his poster on my wall in my bedroom for years because uh, he was kind of one of my heroes among many other guys. Um, and lo and behold, later on, I got a chance to race in one of his races. But it was that interest in doing that, and I rode a lot, uh, and 
and I started just learning and eventually there was uh, some races that started getting formed in, in what was really a, an early sport in the late 70s. This was like 79, 78, 79, uh, yeah, and it was 79, 80, I think is the timeline there. And uh, you know, I was already older than most of the kids, but I still wanted to do it. I right. was super fueled and passionate about it. And for me, bikes have always been kind of a way to uh, create additional travel distance for me mentally um, and go out and move around and just explore. That's what I used it for. So it's, you're talking about something that sounds pretty casual and stuff, but you ended up being one of the, the top competitors in the sport. So we had talked before about like getting down to California. So I'm kind of curious. So how does somebody who's building bikes in Calgary end up being represented uh, by one of the most prominent BMX companies and, um, you know, producers in the United States. How did you, how did you get that? How did that path happen? Oh, that's so that's kind of a long path, Dave, but, uh, what happened is that, uh, I raced BMX for a bike shop, uh, called South cycle, you know, basically it was a t-shirt with something. You go to the, the local mall place and try do a heat transfer. And I got from crashing all three motos of my first race. My sponsor goes, uh, this is pathetic, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and I got up and was determined not to do that again. So I practiced and practiced and practiced and, and learned how to ride and go over jumps and things like that. And because I, I use my bike just to, just to burn off energy, not even consciously doing it, but just I rode my bike everywhere. Um, started going to more and more races. I uh, realized I had a bit of a knack. I started winning local races in a, basically it was a horse barn in the middle of winter yeah. and on wooden ramps with a horse barn and started cleaning up there. Uh, and that kind of just fueled me. Like it, it sort of helped my confidence a lot too. Because before that I was a total geek. I was, I was in the library all the time. I was part of the li I was librarian's helper to love reading and there's nothing wrong with that. Stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But I didn't have a lot of confidence. I was always the smaller kid in the school. Uh, I went to 12 schools growing up. Oh, wow. And uh, so I'm always the new kid, the, the small kid, and the kid that had some different stuff going on. But BMX uh, started to fuel my confidence on a personal basis. And then eventually I uh, went to race, in, a race up in Edmonton. Uh, I can't remember who connected me to a race up in Edmonton. But there's, there's two brothers I met. Uh, one's name is uh, Terry Lepofsky and Pat Lepofsky, who are still, uh, I call them brothers, basically. Uh, they're still friends. Uh, and I sent just Terry a photo just the other day. They connected me with their colleague, uh, Leon Abright, uh, which ran the club up in Edmonton. I hung out with these guys for racing stuff up in Edmonton. And from there, uh, go to some other races. There's a friend of theirs that they had met through some travels. This guy was going from California to Alaska, happened to stop in and notice there was BMX in Edmonton and met these guys. His name is Rob Lynch and met Rob. He's pretty cool. Uh, Perry Kramer, I think was with him at the time. And I met him and I was just enthralled. These are guys I read about in the magazines. Right. I was like, this is cool. And I did pretty good at that race, if I remember correctly. I don't know if I, how well I did really. It doesn't really matter, but it was that interest. They had the cool factory kit and gear. They rode for a company called SE Racing. Uh, anybody around BMX would know the name. Uh, basically stood for Scott Enterprises. <laughs> a pretty simple name. Right. But uh, 
from there, uh, I ended up going to uh, a race in, in, uh, in Vancouver. Uh, Pat and Terry were there and uh, a bunch of other guys. Uh, Barry McDonnell, who organized the BMXAC racing. I think this is an ABA race, which is American Bicycle Association or, or American BMX Association, basically. But it's called ABA. And in 1981, uh, I think it was around February, I raced in the Agrodome of, of Vancouver. They had a concrete track, obviously, inside, and they had wooden ramps. All the top pros are there, from Stu Thompson, uh, Brian Patterson, or Patterson, and, and on and on. I still have some gloves I, I got. I was kind of an autograph hound, just starstruck, if you will, at the time. How well I did? No idea. I think I was a novice, maybe an expert by that time. The graduation in the race goes from basically your beginners, the novice, obviously, and then you go to expert class, and then you could go to higher levels like race pro, and there's there was two levels of pros later on. Um, but from there, it was just kind of fueled my passion. Uh, my dad was kind of pissed off because I was 81, I was in grade 12, uh, and my dad was like, really, you're going to... Yeah, not catch your flight to come home because you're going to go do this race. I said, yeah, that's what I'm doing, Dad. Well, you have to pay change fees and everything else. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and you got, he told me I had to pay for it. Yep, I got it, Dad. Well, I was working pipeline construction for the last couple of summers, so I had a bit of money, so I wasn't really worried about that. Yeah. And uh, so that allowed me some opportunity, but I was kind of hooked from there, meeting all these top pros, and our buddy Rob Lynch was also there. He drove up in a I think a Chevy uh, van of whatever from California up to that. And and it was just, I felt like I was, I kind of felt a group of people that I really was aligned with. I mean, that was probably the most powerful thing. I think as a kid growing up, you're trying to find where do you fit? Yes. And that for me, I think was where I fit. Yes. At least at that time. And uh, certainly I've created some super long, super good friends that have been lifelong friends. And many that helped me in ways that I never, ever would have guessed. So anyways, from that, Dave, I uh, came back. I raced all kinds of races in Calgary. Started to get a little bit quicker and quicker uh, uh, that summer. And then our buddy Rob told me about a race in California, and I wanted to go down there. So I'd just been working in the summer, working for a pipeline organization. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I was driving. I think I had a girlfriend. the reason I wasn't living out of town. And ended up uh, uh, basically quitting my job. Again, completely pissed my dad off. He's like, uh, you got high school. Uh, you quit a job that's paying very, very well. So were you, excuse me, were you still in high school during this whole thing? Uh, I was a graduate in 81. Okay. All right. So that well, summer I was working by, back in pipeline got it. again. Got right? it. <laughs> and, and I said, no, yeah, dad, I'm, I got to go to this race. So you going to quit to go to a race for like a week? Like, what are you doing? And then I asked my boss and he looked at me like I was insane. Um, but no, nope, that's what I'm doing. I think I was only there for a week, maybe two. And when I was down, down there, I ended up uh, meeting through Rob Lynch. Rob rode for uh, SE Racing. And my, I met Scott Brighthop, Mike Devitt. Uh, Scott Brighthop is the owner. Mike Devitt was basically his business guy. Uh, and all the guys from Perry Kramer rode with him and I went to a bunch of races there, not just the one race, but multiple races. And you say that, you know, that hook was pretty much set by that time. I was super in on, by that time. So the culture down in the United States, was it quite a bit different than up in Canada? Like it was big time? 
I mean, in Canada, it was, was it, would you say when you started, it was more of a fringe sport or was it getting to be pretty big back then? In Canada, it was tiny. It was, it's just because of population and weather. California, uh, much bigger population. Yeah. Sort of a, a, it sort of started with guys riding mountain bikes down, or not mountain bikes, but cruisers down the hill. And it sort of morphed into a couple sports, both mountain biking and then also into BMX. And so some rode both depending on where you were, but mountain bikes were really, they're really long and they're really designed about uh, riding on trails as opposed to having fun and jumping stuff. And as kids, you know, you, you hear stories about riding a Schwinn Stingray or something. That was what we want to do. So when you're, you're down in California, you went there for two weeks, you came back. How did you end up, did you stay down in California over a period of time then? No, I came back. Uh, I had to look for work because uh, I, I was still living at home. And the deal was that uh, if I'm living at home and I'm not, I'm not going to school, I got to pay rent. Right. So, and it was nominal amount, but it was really about forcing your, forcing our hands as kids uh, to make sure that we at least were doing something useful. And so I had a series of multiple different jobs. Uh, I can't even remember some of them, but from working at Windsor Plywood to you know being a magazine sorter, like the list is kind of endless uh, of what different things I did. But I was trying to fuel my passion for riding and I worked in bike shops uh, through that time also. Uh, basically the sponsor got sick of fixing my bike for me and he told me and, and taught me how to fix my own bike and do a lot more and said, you need, need a job. So he sort of hired me to do either building bikes or fixing them. And he was a, a very good mechanic. Uh, among other things. And so during that time, I had a chance to, to do all kinds of things related to uh, the sport, but also outside that. But I'm reading these magazines, I'm buying more of them, I'm putting up more posters in my room, I get more excited about riding and racing. I'm riding all the time, just for, kind of just for fun and jumping things and riding wherever, you know, going to the local little, what used to be a gravel pit, you know, catching air and jumping right. stuff and practicing. and but not consciously practicing, more just having fun and, and hanging out with kids and met a lot of really neat kids. And it's all these races I went to uh, that, you know, that race in California, I ended up getting myself a, a bike called a PK Ripper, which was a, which was a really cool bike uh, back in the day, still is now. All aluminum, is a little bit lighter and it was a bit more performance oriented. Got all kinds of parts from that trip in California. Yeah. And and that sort of got me going a little bit, a little bit quicker, but probably more mentally quicker as opposed to equipment quicker. Like the equipment didn't make that much of a difference. It was more about my own fuel and desire. Uh, I was already working out a fair bit by that time uh, and didn't realize how strong I was. But, uh, but I was just riding every time. I rode all winter too, even in the snow. So once again, so you started becoming successful. So when you're wearing your uh, yellow... Uh team it's no it's actually a it's quite funny i wish you know what if you've got the instagram site we're going to post a picture of you with this because that's a classic so what year is that from that uh 1983 so that's the bicycle shop that you worked at is that correct no i actually worked for a series of bike shops okay. through the years uh first one i worked for was uh, south cycle um, and i worked for them for i can't remember how long it was but a few years and uh then after racing in and out of uh, racing in and out of the states, I went down there. I think another trip, if I remember correctly, it was 1981. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah, 1981. I went to a big race by Knott's Berry Farm. 
at the same time I went to that other race and uh, met all kinds of winning a lot more people uh, were involved in the sport and all the top pros were there all the names I've been reading about and excited then I was not super quick at the time but just by exposure and, and pushing the envelope of where I wanted to be because I was excited about it and I had money to pay for my own way because my parents there's no way in hell that part of my expression but there's no way they actually support that financially it was uh, for many reasons uh, so it allowed me to get excited about it but I was becoming more and more invested in it and you know later on in uh, in 83 uh, we ran a clinic in that summer uh, what I mean by that is that uh, Rob sort of convinced me of hey why don't you talk to some guys up here and we can run a clinic and I'll bring up a couple of the guys we'll we'll do a clinic a racing clinic and I'd done that before with with another buddy of mine uh, Brad Smith and uh, you know, it was great. The kids really liked it because in the sport, it's all the way from really young kids to older ones. And so it's a real family environment in right. many ways. Uh, I was already, I already aged out in classes. I was already in the you know, plus 16 or plus 17 group. And uh, so Rob came up with another fellow by the name of uh, Rod Beckering. Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High were, uh, was the movie. You think of Jeff Spicoli. Well... Uh, all due respect to my friends, uh, they friggin' aced out Jeff Spicoli by about 10. <laughs> and uh, there's stuff that they did on the way up I cannot repeat. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but we had a great time. We, we went, did a clinic in Calgary. I arranged some funds from uh, John Vandenberg Sr. from BMX Unlimited. I <laughs> uh, got him uh, to bring some, put some money together so we can pay for their guys' flights, pay for our gas money, and we made a little bit of money like minimal in the scheme of things. Uh, we ran a clinic there. We ran some clinics in uh, in Vernon and then one in uh, Penticton. Because I don't think Kelowna had a track. Oh yeah, Kelowna we did one also. And then uh, Penticton. And, uh, and and we drove back and we had a, had a great time. Um, but I was becoming so excited about being involved in the sport. And Rob was, you know, sort of talked to my dad because my dad was, you could clearly see that I had passion in what I was, what yes. I was doing. And Rob was trying to sort of suggest that maybe I should come and live and race down there. And it's so, in California. In California. So Rob and, and uh, Rod uh, both went back to California. And uh, I kept on sort of chatting with my dad and somehow badgering him. And you know, he said, you know, finally he sort of said, fine. You know what? I'll give you four grand, and you can go live in California. How old are you at the eighteen? I was uh, eighty three, so I would have been twenty one. Okay, twenty one. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. So it was. Uh, I was like, oh, awesome! I was like super excited. No plan. So. <laughs> You know, the idea was that I was going to get an apartment. I ended up staying uh, with Rob and lived at his, uh, with his mom and, and, and him. And I basically was sleeping on, our, on a bedroll on the, on the ground beside his bed. And uh, for several months, uh, you know, I helped him out a little bit in the bike shop where I could. And when I could, I basically rode from uh, Long Beach to, to Orange County on my BMX bike. Uh, wow. Regular base in Orange County at the time uh, had a YMCA, YMCA track. The YMCA track was where all the top pros in the world raced. 
and that was our weekly Wednesday night race. And the shop I was helping out with is called Pedal Power BMX. That's uh, where you get the that's that's the, the jersey, jersey you're wearing that's right the now. Jersey. And uh, when I was there, uh, I had, you know Rob Rob was Rob loved the sport even more than I did, like more than anybody. And uh, he he was so gracious that he connected me with basically anybody and everybody possible because uh, he just wanted to see the sport. He knew what. It, he knew how great it was and, right. and knew how many people were were influenced in a positive direction by it. And uh, so I, I raced in a lot of those Wednesday night races. Uh, I got faster and faster all the time. Uh, I remember going down uh, in a big crash with a guy by the name of Rob Fade. Now, if anybody goes back and looks at the old magazines, uh, he was atypical BMXer. So we're talking 20-inch wheel bikes, eight people across the track, off a gate, and the races around 30 seconds uh, and Rob was starting to fall over I was ahead of him he went down I went down because his uh, his front wheel got stuck in my pedal and I thought he was gonna kill me now Rob is about 220 pounds it's a big man and he is ripped like like workout fit ripped and I said hey you know I don't think that it was it was me crashing I think it was possibly you just by so I learned how to negotiate under serious stress of almost getting annihilated <laughs> or what I thought would happen because yeah. fights did happen at, at races at times. I never got involved in them, thank goodness. Um, but um, anyways, that's, that's sort of what happened and that was a pro race. Well, I'll go backwards a bit is that I, I did a race in, uh, in Lethbridge uh, and in that race, uh, I decided to go pro a little while earlier than that. I became the first pro in, in, uh, in Canada uh, under the BMXAC and then in other organizations because I was, I was looking to chase a little bit of, uh, a little bit of prize purse money. What would, a, what would a purse be? Like how much prize money do you get? Um, if you're racing at the top levels, you could make as much as uh, three plus grand in a race. Yeah, and that's a lot of years back, so that, that wasn't bad money. 1980. Top pros, Dave, in BMX were making about a hundred grand plus a year. Wow! Which was more than the European road racing professionals were making at that same time. BMX exploded the the income potential for cycling. Exploded it. Was that because of all the marketing as well and publicity, or was it the actual just the purses, like just the prize money for each individual race? Like when you say it's worth. You're saying you can make a hundred grand. Was that including like advertising, or is that just like winning races and stuff like that? It was from salary and sponsorship and purses on top of that. Okay. And why was it a big deal? You bring up a great point. Is that you? If you look at the sport at the time, it's all the way from kids about five or six years old yes. to we'll call it late late teens, early twenties. These kids may not have disposable income, but they have attachment to their parents' income. And they're, if they're interested in it, usually parents will support it. If they're not into other things, they may ride a BMX bike. So to have these cool people or these interesting people that are riding a bike and these magazines, that was a vehicle. We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have any yes. of these vehicles. Yes. Magazines were the way that we learned about it or we'd see it on TV in some, some vehicle. So it was a way to promote products and uh, through people that were, were cool and that had some sort of cachet and could talk to people that were human beings in the sport. 
And so it was a, a very cheap way for a sponsor to get somebody that's super passionate about riding a bike Yes. Uh, to promote their product. It was sort of a grassroots. They did other types of marketing, but this was a really effective way. So you were able to, you were able to gain sponsorship yeah, and I, you were winning races. So you had a, your passion was paying the bills. It wasn't paying the bills. I oh. was, I was like those mini golfers that try to make the big purse that uh, it wasn't, you weren't quite getting there. I was at the edge. I knew that by racing in California that I needed to, to be able to race there, to be able to get to the next level. I was what they call an A pro, but I raced in some of the double A pro classes, which is the higher level. I raced in Vegas and other places. I've been several trips that forget about until we talk now. Uh, and races I went to uh, that, you know, I was racing with all the top pros. How many people would watch these events in Indiana? Does it get a big crowd uh, coming out? Usually it's because all the parents were involved. Right. Uh, but you could have, you know, a thousand or more people there. Motos could take, you could run races for almost three days. Uh, Very cool. Because the, the way the racing system worked. Right, right. So when you were doing this then, you were, uh, you were working for this bicycle shop, you were saying before, yeah. in California. Yeah, I was helping those guys out, yeah. Very cool. All right, talk to me about a movie. We had talked before about uh, you being involved in the production of a movie. I, you got me curious. Go ahead and uh, explain that one. Well, Dave, after I came back from, from living in California and uh, you know, trying to become a pro down there, I was working in bike shops and uh, was working for a company called Ridley Cycle. And I got a call from my friend Rob Lynch, who I spent a ton of time with in California and, and was living with him. And... He said, Mark, uh, our team manager, Russell Kawa of Mongoose, he wants, he's, there's some sort of movie going on up there in your backyard and, and uh, would you be okay if we had a chat? So we ended up having a conversation, the three of us, and uh, they needed a bike mechanic and they knew I was a pretty good wrench. Uh, so I ended up doing about 45 bikes for the movie uh, called Rad, the BMX movie. Now it was uh, produced and directed by Hal Needham of uh, Smokey and the Bandit fame. And uh, Talia Shire, who was in the movie uh, Rocky. Now, their family's got lots of money. There's a lot of stuff that's tied back to, I think, Scorsese or something like that, if I remember correctly. But uh, so I built these bikes in you know, basically just over a day. Uh, what year was this? It was 1985. Okay. <laughs> and uh, my dad said, Yeah, you didn't charge enough. I said, Yeah, whatever, Dad. I, because my dad was always trying to push me, I think, uh, sort of his, his Finnish way. But uh, so they ended up asking me to come in and be, you know work with a property master. And the property master had worked on movies like Stripes and things like that. Super cool guy. What's a property master? They look after all the equipment that is non-wardrobe. Uh, so you had, in this case, for a, a bicycle movie, okay. you're going to have all kinds of bicycles and props that are, uh, that are needed and necessary for the movie to function properly and be part of what's going on. So I, I was going to college at the time, I was at Mount Royal College, it's now a university, and I was taking a bunch of classes, uh, and the movie is being filmed in September in uh, Bonas Park and in Cochrane, Alberta. So in, during the movie, uh, there was times I couldn't be there just because I had class and I didn't want to skip class because it was whatever the class was, it was more important than the movie making all of I think 10 bucks an hour but still not bad for a guy going to school right and but I was pretty clear on where I wanted to be there um, there was people like Lori Logan was in the movie uh, Bill Allen was in the movie 
uh, made longtime friends with uh, other guys like uh, like uh, Martin Apareo. Uh, he did a lot of the stunts. Uh, they asked me to, to ride. That's very cool. But uh, I was busy in school. I said, I, "Sorry, I really." I, I so really you didn't. You chose not to. No, because be they weren't getting paid. I was getting paid. I was making economic decisions, and I was like, "Yeah, whatever." I'm kind of. I felt mentally still past the sport, even though I was. I kind of enjoyed going out there. Yeah. Uh, to the set every once in a while, and uh, the Eddie Fiola and uh, Pat Romano were there and hung out with those guys and rode with them, but also learned a lot about people. You know, there's one guy in particular we rode by, we we're gonna go to a ramp, and he kind of started dishing the guys I worked with in the shop. I was proud to introduce both him to the guys in the shop and vice versa, but I didn't like the way he approached it from a character standpoint. I didn't tell him, but I was just like, you oh, know, that's kind of weird. But learned later that that's part of his personality, um, and I don't know if he's changed. Really, haven't bothered to connect with him later on. But you know, guys like Martin Apareo have connected with. But the point about the movie was that it, it allowed me to make a decision about where I wanted to be. Even I interviewed with IATSE. They wanted because they wanted me to obviously be on their on their union card. But after meeting them, I was like, I just I was bored out of my mind in the movie just waiting for stuff to happen it was too much hurry up and wait or just wait frankly that was not really in my nature so I decided to pass on that and uh, and realized that was not my thing but even the people like uh, Lori Logan um, just seemed to want to walk on water and be treated like uh, a little bit differently than all the rest of us there was not a humanity that was there so in a meeting these interesting people um hell needham was really nice uh, it, uh met him and at the rap party and other and also during on set on set there's a lot of great people so we end up sorting those things out and uh, ironically dave uh i only saw the movie just last year what i never saw the movie only because it was seriously the, yeah only because it was a 35th anniversary or something like that of it and so I went to see it and I laughed because I remember all the stunts that were there and, and key parts and I went oh yeah that's how we did this can that's you buy it on this. like blu-ray or dvd now or like when you said you went and saw it where was it was it? in the it was in the theaters really uh, yeah one of my longtime cycling friends said hey Mark this is something you might be interested in and I went oh yeah you know I've never seen it so I talked to a couple of dads I know here and friends that have become through a sports oh, you're a celebrity and uh I was I was in the credits. I was one of the few guys that was in the credits as the as the bike mechanic. So, ironically, in many ways, I feel as though I kind of carried that title in my world. Is that I'm kind of the guy that goes and fixes things, uh, whether it's in relationships, uh, in businesses, to on and on. It wasn't conscious, but it just kind of just happened that way, where I kind of look after and tinker with things and and make them work better and quietly do my thing behind the scenes. Sometimes I'm out front, but uh, I don't need to be out front to be recognized for it. So uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun uh, at the end of the day. Um, but it was something I was like, yeah, whatever. It was a bit of a job that's, at the time. That's very cool, though. But what a great reflection, too. Yeah. Right. When you're comparing what you do and, and uh, who you are. So when did you decide, I suppose, that... Um, you know, you had to move on from there. Was there a point at all? Because it sounds like this is a passion. You were doing it. And when was there a point when you decided that you needed to do something else or move away from it? Because you still speak so highly of the sport or everything. Did you age out or like? No, I didn't age out. Um, and 
it had more to do with just my financial position. So I had, I had a, a bookended ticket, so I had a ticket to get there and I took a ticket to get home, which was in January of 84. And I wrote a lot uh, around thinking and uh, there was a big gap between where I was and grew up in a, in a pretty nice home in Calgary uh, and where I was living, I was living with my friend in his, his mom's bedroom and it's like it's not his mom's bedroom but in his bedroom and this is crazy I'm not making not making any money um, I still loved it I was fast enough but if I made any money it was like it was pittance I'd pay for a couple sets of tires at the most right okay so it wasn't enough to be able to survive on but it was a it was an encouragement of, of Rob said that we were riding through Long Beach College one night and uh, he said you know you should it was just an offhand comment but it resonated he said, Mark, you should go take some classes. You know, maybe take a class or something like that at night. And I'm like, okay, All right. Just sort of sat in the back of my head. Then I came back uh, and I was pretty depressed. Uh, I raced a big race in uh, in uh, in Hollywood Hills, uh, that Rennie Roker race. It was my last big big pro race that I did. And I found a video on it, as a matter of fact, just a while back. I was thinking about our discussion here. And, and realized that, yeah, the sport, yeah, I, I wasn't going to be able to get there. I, I knew that if I got hurt, because I've watched a lot of guys get hurt that had, we'll call it just a, a regular kind of job with high school education, which is all I had. And, you know, they were kind of, they weren't able to make money. Uh, they weren't able to buy a car or do that. I was like, and then uh, there's another fellow by the name of Lonnie Tatton that came by the shop all the time. And uh, he's driving a... Uh, mid 80s or early 80s Porsche was really nice and he thought that maybe I might, might be a property manager for him or help him out in some way but it never came to be I was hoping that would come to happen but I just didn't know how to network at the time and know how to make the connections of where to get to from there so I went home um, I didn't know any other way uh, but realized that I needed to sort of move on because if I got hurt I needed a backup plan and that was the most important thing that I learned is I needed a backup plan because most of the guys I rode and raced with uh, didn't have one. One guy, one guy did. Um, he went to college, and you know, and he had also a, his dad was a, a ship. He's uh, a ship's captain, and they had a gorgeous home in Orange County. I remember going to his house once, but he influenced that one time. Was like, wait a minute, I don't need to live the way I'm living. This is where I can be. Well, I just need to figure out how to get there and I need to go do something um, that's beyond where I'm at in the sport. So what were some of the lessons you learned from the sport? Because obviously you're successful now and it was, it was interesting. So when you came in this morning, you had all those magazines from the 70s and um, you were looking through them and you said that you get quite emotional looking through the magazines and that was related to probably the experiences you had and the lessons that you learned. What did you learn? How did, how did BMX, how did your experiences help you moving forward? Because obviously, as I said before, you're pretty successful. How did that happen? I'd say the lessons, uh, lessons came in many different ways, Dave. The starting place was at the time was, was being able to pick myself self up after uh, making a decision to not continue with the sport, going through quite a quite a funk and being quite depressed, probably would be clinical, frankly, at the time. 
and be able to pull myself out of that and, and decide to go to school. Uh, I organized to go work for a bike shop, which was Bow Cycle in Calgary. I'm still friends with the guys that own the place today. And I wrenched there for the summer after uh, I came back. Um, I had a, a girl I was seeing that was working there also. And you know, from there she was going to college and I went, oh, that's a good idea. So I went to college and I got on the college track, uh, upgraded my high school because I was brutal along the journey because I was going to be a bike pro, right? So I didn't need to really worry about high school <laughs> and I wasn't really that academically oriented. So it was about being able to realize that the skills I've got in passion is that they can be really applied anywhere. And that lesson came later on, but I realized that I have a drive and desire to do things. And uh, just because I'm not racing a bike, racing bikes professionally, doesn't mean that I can't apply my passion towards something else that I find of interest. I've been lucky in my life to have a lot of them. Um, and it's just a matter of what I think the modern word is, is pivot. Um, but back then we didn't call it that. We just, you're, you're almost just recreating. Um, and I had parents that were, frankly, uh, they allowed me enough room and space to be able to do that and realize that, uh, you know, if I had driven, if I was driven on something, I can go do that. Um, and parents made a big difference. Uh, so the lessons are one about recreating yourself and recognizing that you don't have to be stuck where you're at. Um, and probably the most magical one, and it's the reason why I sort of look at through the magazines, I think about there's so many of the guys that I raced and, and rode with that helped me along the way. And it's really about people. And because I was super inter interested in it, they helped me. They helped me not for themselves, but in some cases maybe they did, but they help me as a person grow. They show me things. They, they check my ego when it needed to be checked. And oh, it needed to be checked a few times because it got, it got outsized. And I learned through all that about uh, that I still love cycling in all forms. Um, I've ridden and raced every discipline of cycling you can imagine uh, from you know, mountain bikes, road bikes, everything. And still love cycling. So I love riding. and. Uh, I learned also later on reflectively when uh, I realized that I had ADHD, which my friends say, uh, dude, you could have told us that. We already knew. <laughs> you could have asked us and you'd have known right away. Um, they thought I knew already, but uh, I had lots of energy. And for me, it was, a, it was an outlet of my time and energy uh, that was used to help my, myself mentally and I use, I've used it as a tool through all my life, cycling, to be able to maintain my calm, get centered, uh, become, become in a better place. That's, uh, those are important lessons. Yeah. The things that you just said. It's interesting. it's interesting when you really look at stuff sometimes. You know, whatever you're passionate, some passionate about, people will often say, well, you'll need to have a real job or you need to do other things than your passion at times. I mean, for me, it was football. I had people at, when I was younger saying, you know, well, what do you, if you can't play football, what would you like to? But it's so cool that you're able to explore your passion, right? And, and, and take that opportunity because so many people still, they'll look at things and they'll go, well, I'm not sure do it. Like you're a testimony to that. Like you wanted to do it. You're young, try it. You'll know if you're going to be able to move forward. But those lessons that you learn, those lessons are so valuable. 
they're interchangeable as anything we do, yeah. right? So Davis, there is a, a member of meeting as we talk here that uh, I had with the church pastor. It was a family family friend. Where my mom spent a lot of time in church, probably because I was uh, I was not exactly the best kid for a little while in my life. Um, but he said to me something very powerful. Um, he said, you know, one great thing is that you're never going to have a what if or you know what if what if I did that? What would it have turned out like? Awesome I, I never ever had that regret, and and then also is that I learned about business and marketing, in so many ways that I still use today, because um, I I had a chance to meet with all the captains of industry, and regular they're regular people, and business is messy, no matter how cool you think that brand or that company is, you run and get on the inside of it. It's about people and connections, people working together and building trust. We talked earlier about trust, about a conversation you had about your truck. That trust thing is something that took a while for me to figure out. But when we go work for people or we go are involved in some group, they're taking a leap of faith on us, not just us taking a leap of faith to go work with them. But it's about having a relationship where we believe in each other and we're going to look after each other, maybe as brothers. So I wasn't really on a team sport per se, but I did end up playing rugby in high school right. and things like that. But this is about doing the right thing when nobody's watching. This is about doing the right thing and, and working hard and doing the best you possibly can. Being the best version of yourself. For Thank you. It. Do it for you, not for anybody else. Do it for you. Yeah, I agree with that. Those are great words. Those are great words. This is awesome. This is, I really enjoyed this. I want to thank you for it. Again, some valuable lessons. And um, you know what? I think we, uh, at some point, we need to have another conversation about some of the things uh, in your life that you can uh, discuss. But thank you so much for this. Dave, thank you. A real pleasure. I'd like to thank Mark once again for coming in and just having an awesome conversation with me. And there was just a ton of takeaways. But you know what really stands out for me? is the idea of pursuing your passion and how important that is and how the lessons that you learn along the way and all those experiences that you have will help you throughout your life. Because honestly, pursuing your passions can be as important as any university degree. And that's because of those invaluable life experiences. And as he said, they have everything to do with trust, connections, and relationships. This is Dave Rizicki with Nathan Rivers. Thanks so much for being with us. Both of us will be back next week. Hopefully you will too. So please take care, be well, and as always, peace. Peace.